Welcome to the Untold Tales Audio Anthologies, written by Dr. Jeffrey A. Robinson and narrated by Melissa Del Toro Schaffner. Dream Time Despite the 30 hours I had spent on board airplanes and waiting in airports, I felt quite wide awake and alert as I arrived at the Canberra Hospital in New South Wales, Australia. While well after midnight, my biological clock insisted it was mid-afternoon, and it would likely be days before jet lag wore off enough for me to adjust to local time. The dark parking lot was empty and deserted. The hospital lobby was similarly devoid of people, and there was no attendant to the registration desk. Peeking around a corner behind the admissions desk, I spied a nurse drinking coffee at a small table in the next room, reading a magazine. Feigning a cough to attract her attention, I backed out making my way around to the front desk as she approached me with a glare. Can I help you, sir? She said. Visiting hours are long over. Positioning myself on the correct side of the counter, I dug into my suit coat for my identification. My name is Dr. Robert Crawford, and I've just arrived to see my brother, James Crawford. I showed her my passport, but she waved it away. It's all right, she said. This is a hospital, not a custom station. I don't need to see your papers. Flinching, I put my ID away. Presenting my passport had become a habit with all the security checks and connections I'd passed through since leaving New York. With layovers in Dallas, Los Angeles, and Sydney, I felt like I'd been traveling for days. The admissions nurse turned away from me and typed something into the computer keyboard next to her at the counter. Let's see. Crawford James, she said. Third floor, room 382. I'm sorry, though, visiting hours aren't until 8 a.m. You'll have to come back in the morning. Gritting my teeth and fighting back the first half-dozen responses that came to mind, I said, Excuse me, but I've just flown over 10,000 miles to see my brother and only arrived at the local airport a few minutes ago. I haven't even checked into a hotel yet because I was told to get here as soon as possible. All I was told was that he's dying. Look, I'm a doctor myself. I specialize in gastroenterology at Good Samaritan Hospital in New York. Are you sure I can at least get some information on his condition? The nurse frowned and started to speak, but looked up at the wall clock instead and her demeanor softened. After a moment of indecision, she said, Go on up. The elevators are around the corner to your right. I'll phone the charge nurse upstairs and tell her you're coming. Mumbling thanks, I hurried to the elevators, hoping to get out of sight before she changed her mind. After a delay so long that I had begun to think the elevator wasn't in service, the elevator doors opened up to admit me. Climbing with agonizing slowness, I started to feel weariness grow upon me as a dim fluorescent light flickered annoyingly overhead and scratchy music droned from speakers nearby. When the doors finally opened, I stepped out and almost ran over a nurse directly in my path. Smiling, she extended her hand in greeting. Dr. Crawford, I presume. Uh, yes, I replied, shaking her hand. I'm Dr. Janet Wilkes, and I've been handling your brother's case. I hesitated and blushed briefly, embarrassed that I'd assumed she was a nurse. Recovering, I released her hand, embarrassed once again. I'm glad you were able to get here so quickly, she said. You must have had a long trip. You were right to come straight up. Your brother isn't doing well, and he may not last the night. What happened? I asked, 
The message I got in New York was cryptic. It only said he was dying. She crossed her hands in front of her and sighed. Your brother James was transferred to us from a regional hospital north of Cooper Pedy in South Australia. A lorry driver found him staggering along a deserted road in the outback and took him to a nearby clinic. Your brother lost consciousness before he arrived, so they couldn't question him. But at first, they thought he might have been bitten or stung by something poisonous. He was covered with mud and filth when he was brought in, and it took quite a while to clean him up and examine him. Unfortunately, even though he had numerous deep cuts and abrasions, they couldn't locate a bite or a puncture site, so they didn't administer any antitoxin. The staff watched him for a day, documenting his symptoms, but when his condition worsened, they sent him here. We have one of the best toxicological facilities in the country. So what's wrong with him? I asked. He's suffering from high fever and an infection of unidentified origin. We haven't identified any treatable toxicological ailment, but his condition has continued to deteriorate. We've administered high doses of broadband antibiotics, but nothing's proved effective. His fever's still dangerously high, and he's grown weaker. If he weren't in such good physical condition, he'd probably be dead by now. Damn it, Jimmy, I thought. Everyone's always told you that if you kept chasing danger like a roughneck, you'd get yourself killed someday. I grimaced at the news. James wrote periodically about his adventures down here. Once he mentioned that Australia had more poisonous insects and snakes than any other continent. I think that was part of the thrill of being here. The doctor nodded. Unfortunately, that's true, but we only carry antidotes for a fraction of the poisonous species. Ironically, some of the antitoxins are as deadly as the venoms they treat, and we can't administer them unless we know exactly what toxin is involved. Isn't there anything you can do? I asked. Not really, she said. We're not even sure anymore that he's been poisoned. He has several nasty cuts, which have become infected. There's one particularly bad wound on his arm that may have caused him to go into toxic shock. It's turned septic and we've left it open to drain. More importantly, his body is currently fighting off something that's ravaging his system, and with his failure to respond to antibiotics, we suspect it's viral in nature. Well, can't you treat him with antivirals? I asked. Dr. Wilkes shrugged. Again, we'd have to know what type of virus. Wide-spectrum antivirals are nearly as hard on patients as the diseases they treat. Besides, his condition's far too weak to handle any of them. If we administered any as you suggest, we'd probably kill him. All we can do now is give him massive injections of gamma globulin to boost what's left in his immune system and try to manage his temperature. How long has he been here? James arrived here three days ago. He was at the Cooper Pedy Regional Medical Center for a day before they transferred him here. When we realized his condition was deteriorating, we contacted the authorities and, since you were listed as next of kin on his immigration papers, we notified you. Thanks, I said. James and I had been quite close as boys, but we'd grown distant over the years. I'd gone on to medical school and started my residency in New York, while he'd gone off adventuring. Jimmy was just the kid brother who never grew up. Even at 28, he'd never settled down 
held a steady job, or had a long-term relationship. He always promised to visit the folks at Christmas, but all we ever got were postcards and pictures from exotic locations around the world. The last the family had heard from him, he'd gone gallivanting down here to Australia and had deliberately adopted the mannerisms of Diamond Jim Ladlow, an entrepreneur and gambler of the Gold Coast in the heyday of the 1850s gold rush. All the most recent pictures of James portrayed him wearing the white hat, white coat, and the gold inlaid wooden cane of his new hero. But now, he was dying. Can I see him? I asked. Sure, replied the doctor. It's time to check on him anyway. Has he regained consciousness at all? Oh, he comes around from time to time, but he's usually delirious. I'm not sure he knows where he is or how bad his situation is. If he's awake, don't get him too distressed. She turned and escorted me down the hall. With the corridor lights dimmed and room lights off, it was hauntingly quiet, reminiscent of walking the length of the large morgue in the hospital in New York, where I worked. The side rooms were all dark, and it was impossible to tell if patients resided in any of them. If there were patients, they were all sound asleep. We turned a corner and I spied the charge nurse, working on charts. She glanced up and returned to her work without acknowledging either of us. At last we came to a dimly lit room with a single bed, an emotionless occupant with a pallid complexion. Dr. Wilkes gestured for me to enter and reached over to the wall and brightened the light incrementally. Then she waited silently at the door behind me. I nearly gasped when I saw Jimmy. I wouldn't have recognized him. His face was drawn and gaunt. Whatever his illness, it had sculpted deep black circles beneath his eyes, and he gasped weakly for each shallow breath. Jimmy seemed far too old and frail to be the vibrant younger brother that I remembered. Taking a seat in a chair by his bedside, I reached out and grasped his hand. It was dry and hot, limp and unresponsive. Glancing back at the doctor with an unspoken query, Dr. Wilkes nodded softly in a silent reply. Jimmy, I said. Jimmy, can you hear me? I felt a feeble squeeze of his fingers and his head turned marginally. His eyelids opened a fraction and red-rimmed eyes peered out at me. Rob? Is that you, Rob? He whispered. Holding his hand firmly, I leaned close. Yes, Jimmy, it's me. I'm here. He sighed. Good. I was just dreaming about you. I wanted to talk to you, and, and now you're here. Chuckling weakly, he coughed and struggled for breath. How are you doing? I asked. Can you hang on a little longer for me? He smiled feebly. No problem, Rob. That's what I do best. I always hang on. I never let go. With that, he squeezed my hand with unexpected ferocity, with a grip that was hard and strong. As young boys, we had always competed with each other, comparing the strengths of our grips. However, despite being two years younger than me, James had always managed to outmuscle me and made me cry uncle first. Tears welled in my eyes, and I felt a surge of hope that he'd be all right. But his vice-like grip slowly faded 
until his hand lay limp once more in my own. Closing his eyes, he sighed and rested quietly for a moment. Jimmy, what happened? I asked. Where were you? For a second, I wasn't sure he heard me. I wasn't sure that he could. Then he opened his eyes and peeked at me again. I found it, Rob. I heard about it years ago, but everybody else thought it was just a story. What did you find, Jimmy? The secret of Chikorpa, the Aborigine dream time. James struggled to turn toward me, half rolling on his side to face me, but he failed and collapsed back onto his pillow, gasping from the effort. Closing his eyes once more, he slowly explained. Three years ago, I met an Aborigine named Udnadatta. He told me all the exotic Aborigine myths and stories that tourists pay to hear. He wove tall tales of the ancient Anangu Aborigines. But when he was finished, I didn't go away. I asked him to tell me more. It took months, but eventually he told me secrets, rarely shared with outsiders. Udnadatta told me about how their heroes became dreamwalkers. To him, this was no tale. It was sacred mystery. James' breathing grew shallow and soft. It seemed as though he might have fallen asleep in mid-sentence, but after a few moments he inhaled deeply and continued. My friend said a shaman lived in a cave near Kantchu Gorge, south of the holy rock Uluru. The shaman was reportedly thousands of years old, and he periodically revealed the secrets about dream time to their high priests and warriors. Those gifted with the ability to dreamwalk became immortals and heroes to the local tribes. That's what I went looking for, Rob. The secret of immortality. Oh my God, I thought. He's gone and killed himself looking for the local fountain of youth? Poor Jimmy's wasted his life searching for a cure for a midlife crisis. Rob, listen, he insisted. It's true. James turned his head and his eyes grew wide. His inflamed bloodshot eyes pleaded urgently for me to believe. It took me months to find the cave. I thought I'd have to search every damned crevice in a hundred square miles of rocky cliffs, but I found it. The cave was half hidden by a rock slide, and the entrance was barely wide enough to squeeze through, but inside there was a huge complex of caverns. Even then, Rob, I had to go back over and over again. You see, the shaman only appears when there's a full moon, and he only shows up for a few minutes precisely at midnight. It has to be a night, you know, because the caves are full of bats and you can only enter safely when most of them are out feeding. Still, there are plenty left behind to defend their cave. Chuckling once more, he wrinkled his nose. Would you believe I had to rub bat guano all over myself so the bats wouldn't attack me? The smell was so bad. 
I had to plug my nose and breathe through my mouth or I'd gag. Turning my head toward Dr. Wilkes, I raised my eyebrows in another silent query. She shrugged. It would explain the numerous cuts and infections. The hospital staff at Cooper PD did report he was covered in filth. That part of his story may be true. Go on, Jimmy, I said. What happened then? James coughed. The shaman, an ancient priest named Wadu, appeared in the back of the grotto in the center of the cave complex. I swear, he just materialized out of thin air. One moment, no one was there. The next, he was squatting on a ledge overhead, staring down at me. When I got over the shock of his presence, I explained why I'd come, but he didn't reply. He listened like he understood but wouldn't respond. I repeated my request and pleaded. Soon I bargained and demanded, but the shaman continued to stare at me like I was an inanimate curiosity. Finally, I got angry and threatened to come back with explosives and blow up his cave if he didn't give me his secret. James laughed weakly. Frankly, Rob, I, I decided he didn't understand English. But he must have because he jumped off his rock and approached me. His face was painted and streaked with gray ash. His hair was wild and ragged, but his skin was the darkest black of any aborigine I've ever seen. All he wore was a loincloth, and his only possession was a long, thin spear with a shiny black stone at one end. He approached like he was studying me. His, his eyes narrowed as he leaned close, and he sniffed at me. I didn't move. I was afraid. I simply didn't know what he was going to do next. James paused and took a few shallow gasps before proceeding. Even this short conversation was a great strain on him. I thought he might attack, but the shaman just smiled. Then, with complete calm, he lowered his spear and drew the black spearhead across his palm. Sucking in a deep breath, James said, Rob, that spearhead must have been as sharp as a razor because it cut his hand all the way to the bone. I watched in horror as blood poured from his hand to the ground, but the little guy kept on smiling like nothing had happened. Then, before I could react, he whipped his spear forward and cut my arm. Jimmy reached over with his right hand and touched the gauze on his left forearm. Here, I'll show you, he said. Without hesitation, James hooked a finger under the dressing above where I held his hand and pulled it back. It was an ugly wound. The gash was at least eight inches long and two inches deep. His forearm was cut lengthwise from elbow to wrist, and the open wound was badly abscessed. The infection was severe, and the arm was red and swollen to nearly twice its normal size. The doctor swore under her breath and hastened to his side. I told you we have to leave it open so it can drain, but it must be kept covered. 
Glaring at me, she reapplied the dressing, but James didn't resist her efforts to tape the gauze back down. He simply smiled, and when she was finished, he continued the story. Anyway, when the shaman cut me, I jumped backwards in shock and pain. But the damn little guy was faster than you'd believe. Before I could move away, he grabbed me with his hand, the one he'd cut, and held me by my arm. God, it hurt. I screamed and tried to pull away, but he wouldn't let go. His grip was incredible. I thought he was going to rip my arm off. I fought to get away. I screamed at him and hit him. But for a little guy, he was pretty tough. He never flinched, even though I must have struck him more than a dozen times. At last, I stopped struggling, and he smiled. Slowly, very slowly, he relaxed his grip, and blood from both our wounds began to drip through his fingers. He held me there for several minutes, fixed by his icy eyes and his iron grasp. Finally, he let me go and stepped back. I, I grabbed my arm and tried to apply direct pressure to stop the bleeding. The little fellow, however, simply jumped back up to his ledge. When he was crouched down again, he shouted something and flung his hand up at the roof of the cave, spraying blood all over the bats on the ceiling. They scattered in a frenzy of activity. Then he held his hand up before me and slowly made a fist. I nursed my own arm, wondering what the little guy was up to. After maybe a minute, he carefully opened his fingers and revealed his hand. Horror radiated from James' eyes. Rob, I, I swear there was, there was blood everywhere, but the cut on his hand was gone. His palm was smooth and unmarked as a newborn baby's. I gaped in awe and examined my own wound. Blood dripped and continued to seep through my fingers, pooling on the dirt below. The shaman laughed and suddenly shouted once more. At his command... All the bats took off from their perches and darted around the cavern. I ducked and dodged their attacks and glanced back toward the ledge, but the shaman was gone. The bats started hitting me then, and I figured the smell of the blood was exciting them. So I ran from the cave. Once outside, I got lost. Clouds hid the sky, so I couldn't find my direction. I... Guess I was weaker from blood loss than I thought. I must have passed out somewhere and someone found me. Next thing I knew, I was here. James gasped and lay back on his pillow once more. That is, except for the dreams. God, what incredible dreams I've had. He managed a small smile, but a grimace quickly replaced his grin and his eyes clenched shut with a shudder of pain. Soon, his whole body shook. I looked to Dr. Wilkes. Is this because of his fever? I asked. Yes, she said, hurrying over as she reached a bedside table and removed a syringe from one of its drawers. He's not shivering, though. He's having another seizure. The convulsions are caused by the prolonged fever. His brain is starting to die from the high temperature. 
As she filled the syringe with a vial from the cabinet above the table, I backed away from the bed and asked, What are you giving him? It's mytilotoxine, the doctor answered, as she injected a yellowish liquid into his upper arm. It's a muscle relaxer similar to curare. It'll stop his spasms before he hurts himself. A nurse arrived and assisted. Together the doctor and the nurse held James down, as his convulsions steadily grew more intense. Finally, the doctor reached over to the nearby table and picked up a leather strip, which she had placed between James' teeth. As the two of them held Jimmy down, she said, I'm sorry, Dr. Crawford, you'd best wait outside. I'll call you when he's resting again. Backing out into the hall, I took a seat in a nearby chair and waited in silence, wondering what to do. Hopefully just being there would give James strength, but I was worried that I was already too late. After a short time, I tried something I hadn't done since my grandmother's funeral many years before. I closed my eyes and prayed. This story is to be continued in the next episode.